Open your Bibles this morning to the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 9. I want to read just two verses this morning. John chapter, I'm sorry, I said 9. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Again, I just want to read two verses this morning. John chapter 19, verse 17 and 18 this morning. It says, And he bearing his cross went forth into a place, called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified Him, and two others with Him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Leave off reading there in verse 18. Just a little bit of a review. Again, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, He was led by both Romans and Jews uh, to the Jewish religious leaders. They spent most of the night in the early morning hours calling one false witness after another against Him. And though none of them uh, could agree, they condemned Him to death. After condemning Him to death in the early morning hours, they took Him to Pilate. And they demanded that Pilate put him to death. But both Herod and Pilate determined that there was nothing worthy of death to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Pilate had him scourged and mocked by the Roman soldiers. And after the scourging and mocking, he brought him forth again before the Jews and set forth Barabbas next to him calling upon the Jews to choose one, and they chose Barabbas and demanded that Jesus Christ be crucified. The Bible says after that that Pilate sought many ways to try to free him, to release him. Finally, he submitted himself, though, to the political pressure of the Jews and acting out of a weakness, acting out of fear, Pilate brought judgment against the Lord Jesus Christ, condemning Him to death and pronouncing that that death should be by crucifixion. Last week we looked at verse 16. Then delivered He Him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led Him away. And we looked at that text and showed how that they... Jesus is fulfilling the Scriptures, the prophetic Scriptures concerning His death in that statement. This morning we see in our text more Scriptures being fulfilled. And the focus of this morning's message will be on that. As one statement after another is made, God is showing from the Old Testament, I had said this before. This is what had to come to pass. This is what must come to pass. And as we look at this, one of the things that we have been seeing in our study of the Gospel of John is that God is in complete control of all the aspects of things that are happening to His only begotten Son. Not only have we seen the determinate counsel of God fulfilled and worked out in every detail, but we are also seeing, as I said earlier, many prophecies brought out of the Old Testament that were being fulfilled during this time. 
As I said last week, we looked at John chapter 19 and verse 16. Then delivered him, he, him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And we saw last week that that was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. I don't know if you've done much study, but a lot of commentators, when they come to Isaiah 53, raise questions about whether or not the God was actually talking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they go into the Hebrew, they do this, they do that with arguments. And uh, many people swallow that kind of stuff. Look, if it is mentioned in the New Testament, okay, if God confirms something in the New Testament, then what is going on in the Old Testament is what it is saying. Okay? And the Bible talks about the Isaiah 53 a lot in the New Testament. Last week we saw in Isaiah 53 verse 7, the Scripture says He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth, He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And I said the Hebrew word behind the English word brought means that He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And in verse 16, we see them leading Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God to Calvary's cross. This morning, we want to see other Old Testament Scriptures being fulfilled here. The verse that we're looking at primarily this morning is John 19 and verse 18, where they crucified Him. We're going to focus on that we're not going to leave only that. There's others there and two others with Him. And then we'll add one other text out of another Gospel. But they crucified Him. Now, why is that critical in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? Though other methods were used by the Jews in the death penalty, yet the primary method used by the Jews in the death penalty was stoning. We see that in Acts in chapter 7 where they stoned Stephen. And they were going to stone the Apostle Paul except the Romans came and fetched him. The primary method of capital punishment, if you would put it that way, among uh, the Jews was stoning. But Jesus Christ was not stoned, was He? Instead, He was crucified. So, God is telling us something in these words. The primary method of the death penalty used by the Romans, on the other hand, was crucifixion. Particularly for those criminals who were more notorious than others. The Scripture speaks of the two that were crucified on the side, on either side of Jesus. They simply reveal that they were thieves. A lot of times these were just thrown in jail. So it had to be more than that because these are being crucified. They must have been notorious. I believe that they were associated with Barnabas in the trying the overthrow of the Roman government. That's just can't be proven from the scriptures, but I think there is a connection there. And so, what do we see? We see both Jews and Romans 
laboring together, being brought together by God for the crucifixion of His Son. Remember, we have quoted from you for you often Acts chapter 4. And verse 27 says, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Acts 4.27 And so both are responsible. But in the crucifixion, in the actual death, it is not the Jews putting him to death, but the Romans, the Gentiles. It was the Roman soldiers, according to the Word of God, uh, under operating under the authority of Pilate the governor, that actually crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 19, in verse 23, the Bible says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments. When they had crucified Jesus. It was the Roman soldiers that crucified Him. It, <coughs> it was a Roman soldier that pierced His side. In John chapter 19 and verse 32, Then came the soldiers, and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with Him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that He was dead already, they break not His legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And it was the Roman soldier that stood next to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ when he gave up the ghost that said in Luke 23, in verse 47, then... Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So it is the Roman soldiers that are gathered at Calvary. It is the Roman soldiers that are gathered around the cross to keep the crowd away. The crowd is there. They're sitting down. They're mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is the Roman soldiers, representative of the Roman government, that crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus Christ die in this way. Why? Why? Because God had prophesied that this is the manner in which His Son would die back in Psalm 22. Go with me to Psalm 22 and look at the Scriptures here, beginning in verse 16 and going to verse 18. In Psalm 22, David himself prophesies of this form of death, that the Messiah, the seed of David, would suffer. Psalm 22, verse 16 says, For dogs have compassed me. The poetic language of being surrounded by rabid, ferocious dogs and then defined in a typical Hebrew poetry way with the second phrase, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. The assembly of the wicked, those that have enclosed around the Lord Jesus Christ, are pictured in poetic language as dogs barking and chasing and surrounding the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, I think, instructive 
that when Paul warns the church at Philippi, beware of dogs, that he's talking about beware of the Jews and their religion. Jews and Gentiles alike having surrounded the Lord as He's there on the cross. Verse 17, verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 16 again. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They, these dogs, this assembly of the wicked have pierced my hands and my feet. I may kill all my bones. They look and stare upon me, verse 17. Verse 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vestures. We'll pick up those verses next week, I think, in John chapter 19 later. A thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, David sits with pen in hand and writes under inspiration of God, they have pierced my hands and my feet. This prophecy was fulfilled at Calvary. It was testified to by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was witnessed by the apostles and the early church. Go now to John chapter 20. Go now to John chapter 20. We'll begin looking at John 20 and verse 19 and 20. And then drop down a few verses later. In John chapter 20, verse 19, the Bible says, Then the same day at Eden, talking about the first day of the week, in the evening hours, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace. Be unto you. The disciples were gathered there. That's more than just the apostles. The disciples are gathered there. It is the Lord's church gathered together. Verse 20. And when he had so said, when he had said, Peace be unto you, he showed them his hands and his side. Everything in the scripture is important. He said, Peace unto you. And then he said, he opened his hands and his side up and showed them. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, speaking of Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, that is, from this Sunday to the next Sunday, that's eight days, counting Sunday to Sunday, after eight days again, the disciples were within. Again, on the first day of the week, the disciples gathered again. And Thomas with them. Then came Jesus the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace on, be unto you. Verse 27. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And so, 
it was testified to by the apostles and by the church that his hands and his feet had been pierced. Now, the fulfillment of this prophecy is even more significant when you realize that the Romans did not always use nails to hold their victims to the cross. Most of the time, they tied their victims to the cross with rope. That is their practice. But not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. In the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Romans used nails to pierce His hands and His feet. Why? Why didn't they just simply tie Him to the cross with a rope? Why did the Romans choose nails on this particular day for this particular person? Why? Because God, a thousand years earlier, through His servant David, had pinned, they pierced my feet and my hands. Because God had prophesied, this is the way that the seed of David, the Son of God, was going to die at the hands of the wicked that had enclosed Him. Every word of God becomes important. Every prophecy, every aspect of prophecy becomes important. A thousand years before, David, not knowing what would happen. David, not seeing the cross, could prophesy of what would be coming. It was necessary. So verse 19 or verse 18 states where they crucified Him. Very critical language here. And verse 18 continues where they crucified Him and two others with Him. On either side one and Jesus in the midst. This also is a fulfillment of Scripture. Notice what Mark says. John does not address this, but Mark does. Go with me to Mark chapter 15 and see in verse 27 and verse 28 what Mark says. Mark 15 verse 27 and 28, the Scripture says, And with Him they crucified two thieves, the one on His right hand and the other on His left. And then verse 28, Mark says under inspiration of Scripture that, for this purpose, that the and the scripture was fulfilled. For this purpose was this taking place, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith what? He was numbered with the transgressors. I said a while ago, if the New Testament quotes from the old, then the Old Testament, what the New Testament says about the old is true. All those that would question Isaiah 53, whether that is speaking of Messiah, whether that is speaking of Jesus being crucified, all of them that raise those questions need only go to one Scripture. Mark chapter 15, verse 28, that the Scripture would be fulfilled, which saith He was numbered with the transgressors. That's quoted out of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul on the death, and he was numbered with 
the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. We'll leave off reading there. There's more to that verse and we'll come back to it a little bit later. Over 700 years passed before Isaiah's prophecy would be fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. Isaiah would write and die and though his record and prophecy was preserved, 700 years would pass or so before the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified with one thief on his right and one on his left. Again, it was fulfilled because God was working out every detail. The Roman soldiers don't know anything about Old Testament history. The Jews do not believe Jesus is Messiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. There is nothing going on by the work of men that can fulfill these things. Oh, we read this, we better do this. Not like that at all. The unseen hand of God is ordering all the events taking place that day. Every aspect of the Son of God, including the fact that on His right and on His left, two men were crucified so that He might be numbered among transgressors. Why was the Holy Son of God numbered among transgressors? There are a number of answers depending upon how you look at the, answer, how you look at the question. The first aspect is, why was He numbered among the transgressors from the perspective of the Jews? Why did they call him a male factor? Why was he treated as a criminal and as the, as the worst of the worst? Why did they declare to Pilate that he should be, he is considered a transgressor? Well, the answer to that question is he was numbered with the transgressors because his enemies hated him so much that they desired to keep upon Him the greatest amount of contempt, the greatest degradation. They called for His crucifixion and the greatest shame. Romans crucified their people naked. It was the greatest shame in a public place as they were put there upon that cross the degradation of it all, the, the despising of it all, numbered among the transgressors. They called out, they cried. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I said they were yelling at the top of their voice. They wanted Him crucified because of the shame of it, because of the degradation of it, because of the contempt of it. All would pass by and wag their heads at Him, Psalm 22 says. They would sit and mock Him, the Scripture says. Here is one who said He was the Son of God. Here is one who claimed to be King of Israel. Here is one who said He was a Savior. Here is one who said He could help us and He can't even help Himself. They hated Him. Perfect, sinless Son of God treated as a common criminal, the worst of criminals, like the lowest of the low, like the scum of the earth. By the most religious people upon the earth at that time, He was treated as such. Why? 
They despised Him. They despised Him. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our face from Him. We didn't want to hear. We closed our ears to His Word. We closed our eyes to what He was doing. We hid our faces from Him. He was despised. And we esteemed Him not. Instead of honoring and reverencing and esteeming the Son of God, we rejected and despised and held Him in contempt. The word despised in Isaiah 53 verse 3 comes from a Hebrew word which means to hold in contempt. To regard a person as being a vile person. To look at the person as though he is worthless and despicable. As they looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they saw nothing in Him that was worthy of anything. Because He's worthless to them. Despised by Him. He was numbered secondly among the transgressors because He chose to be numbered among the transgressors. There is an aspect of this that I want us to see coming from the Lord Jesus Christ's side. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, the Scripture says, but He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant who was made in the likeness of men. Our Lord voluntarily subjected Himself to everything that was necessary to save sinners from their sins. He voluntarily became a man. He voluntarily suffered the reproach of men during His earthly ministry. He voluntarily took upon Himself the sin of sinners. He voluntarily endured the cross and the shame of it. Everything that led up to it. He volunteered Himself to suffer for the cause of saving sinners from their sins. Everything that led up to it from His capture or Him being taken in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the mocking, all of it that went through that day, all of the things that He went through to the crucifixion, everything that took place while He was upon that cross, all of it as they spat on Him and and mocked Him and cursed Him, all of it He took upon Himself He chose to do that, that He might save sinners from their sins. He was numbered with the transgressors, but He was not a transgressor. He had not transgressed the laws of men, nor had He transgressed the law of God. Though He was numbered among them, He is the perfect, spotless, impeccable Son of God hanging upon that tree. He is the righteous Son of God, the the One who came and volunteered and became a man and fully God, fully man at the one and the same time in one person, one undivided person. Choosing 
to take sin upon Himself. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He, God, hath made Him the Son of God to be sin for us in our place as our substitute. The phrase for us comes from a Greek word. It means in our place or as our substitute. Who knew no sin. This one knew no sin. Sin could not sin. Was unable to sin. He knew no sin. But he became sin for us. He did not become a sinner. He was numbered among the transgressors, but he was not a transgressor. Sin was laid on him. But he was not a sinner. And the purpose of that is that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. The old Baptist theologian John Gill says, having all the sins of His people upon Him, He was treated even by justice and the law of God as if He had been the transgressor and suffered as if He had been one. But He was not one. He never sinned, never broke the law of God, remained forever fully God, fully man at the same time, the impeccable Son of God. And yet when sin was laid on Him, and God looked upon Him with our sin upon Him, God treated Him as Pat Horner and judged Him in my place. God treated Him as you, if you're a Christian, and saw you there in your sin there and judged Him in your place. He stood in your place. He took your place. And the judgment of the Almighty that is due against sin, righteous judgment. If we lived in a righteous nation, people in this nation would know about righteous judgment. They would know about righteous justice. But we don't live in a righteous nation. We live in an unrighteous nation where men and women can, and children can get away with crimes and do anything they want to do. And the, and the law turns its eye. lets them go and do whatever they want to. Thieves. They walked in to a TJ Maxx in San Francisco and walked out with arms loaded with clothes and other stuff. Just walked in and walked out and no one did anything about it. Stores closing, closing all over our nation because no one will enforce the law anymore. Cities burning because no one will enforce the law anymore. If we lived in a righteous, law-abiding, just nation, men would know that if you sin, if you break the law, you deserve the justice of the law against you. God knows that. And God's law hasn't changed. And though men want to get rid of God and want to get rid of God's law, they want to live the way they want to live. They don't want to think about God and think about owing God. They don't want to think about doing what God has said. Christ came 
And at that, on that cross, He said, I will take their sin upon Me. I know no sin. I am not a transgressor. I am not a breaker of the law. But I will bear it in My body on the tree and the justice due to it and the judgment due for it. Numbered among the transgressors so that He might bear the sins of His people so that they might be saved from their sins. There was another thing going on at the same time that they were crucifying Him. John does not record it, but Luke does. And I want you to go over there because I want you to see something of the Savior here that is going on at the, at the time that He is actually being nailed to that tree, at the time that He is being crucified, at the time that He's hanging between heaven and earth. Luke chapter 23 and verse 33 it says, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then, in the midst of that crucifixion, in the midst of that action, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted His raiment and cast lots. This too is part of prophecy. This too is an expression of the heart of Christ, but it's part of prophecy. Remember I said we would come back to Isaiah 53 verse 12. In Isaiah 53 verse 12 we read, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. While being crucified, he made intercessors, intercession for the transgressors. Luke records it as he cries out as he's being crucified, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Our Lord is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years earlier as He is praying for sinners while He is being crucified. But there is more going on here. Even as I preached about Him carrying His cross. And I said He had instructed His disciples about bearing their own cross. There is more going on here. And though He is fulfilling prophecy, He is also reminding His disciples of a righteous Christian life. In Matthew chapter 4, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, our Lord had given instruction on concerning on what it was to live righteous in the kingdom of God. And as our Lord was fulfilling the prophecies related to His death, He was also fulfilling His own instruction concerning righteousness. Matthew 5.43 He says, You have heard that it hath been said, 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. As the Jews and the Romans were despitefully using our Lord Jesus Christ as they were persecuting Him, as they were despising Him, as they were rejecting Him, as they were nailing Him to the cross as a common criminal, as the scum of the earth. The heart of the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for those. Praying for them. There are three things I want us to look at. This prayer was for sinners who were His enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 10, the Scripture says, but God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's praying that sinners would be forgiven. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We were enemies. He is being nailed to the cross. He is bearing our sin in His body. And He is praying for sinners who are His enemies. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. So first, this prayer is for sinners and for enemies. Secondly, this prayer is for both Jew and Gentiles. It was partially answered throughout the book of Acts. I want you to look at one text, Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Acts chapter 14 and verse 1. I say partially answered because it is continuing to be answered even to this day. Partially answered in Acts 14 and verse 1 where the Scripture says, and it came to pass in Iconium. This is a, a Gentile place, but there are Jews there. It came to pass in Iconium that they, that's talking about Paul and his company, that they, both, that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews. Now here, they're in among the Jews. And so spake that a multitude, both of Jews and also of Greeks, believed. Went into the synagogue of the Jews and spake in such a way that both Jew and Gentiles in that synagogue believed and followed them out. And a church was started. He is praying for both Jew and Gentiles. He knows this is God. He knows that in 70 AD, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the temple is going to be destroyed, and the kingdom is going to be given into the hand of the Lord's churches. He knows. He's already told them that. He knows that judicial blindness will come upon the, the ethnic people of Israel. He knows. But there is still a remnant of the, among the Jews that fit this, this sinner, this enemy criteria. And he is praying, Father, forgive them. 
There's certainly a number among the Gentiles that fit this sinner, this enemy criteria. And he is praying, Father, forgive them. Now those who would take that prayer and apply it to everyone there at the cross and saying they were all saved, I don't see that in the Scriptures. I don't believe that. The, the Scriptures, in fact, deny that. The very, uh, the very Roman soldiers, or the majority of them, after the resurrection were paid money to lie about Him. And they lived that lie the rest of their life. And all liars will find their place in the lake of fire. And not Christians, but some of them. Some of them were saved in answer to our Lord's prayer. So, second aspect, this prayer is both for Jew and Gentiles. And it is partially answered in the New Testament record, but it continues to be answered in the book of the Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. God sort of pulls back the curtains of of heaven and gives us a view. And in chapter 7, verse 9, John says, And after this I beheld in lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And verse 10 said they cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God pulls back the curtain of heaven. Who's there? A multitude that no man can number. Why are they there? How did they get there? Forgiven by God. And declared righteous through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They stand now in heaven justified. And praise God for the Lamb that was slain that brought them to that place. Where did they come from? Out of all the nations of the world, Jew and Gentiles alike. And there's one other thing that I want to bring out regarding this. Because as it was with the cross-bearing, so it is with this kind of attitude of prayer. In Acts chapter 7, we see that His instruction, our Lord's instruction in righteousness given in the early days of His ministry in Matthew chapter 5. And His example in life and upon the cross was followed by His disciples. Acts chapter 7 and verse 59 and verse 60, we have the account of Stephen, the first martyr in the first century. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The answer to the prayers of the righteous child of God who is following the Lord Jesus Christ is up to God. It is always God answering according to His will and not ours. The answer to the Lord Jesus Christ prayer in at Calvary was answered from a from a, from a perspective that he prayed according to his knowledge of all who would ever be saved but the attitude the heart the instruction in righteousness was followed 
by those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't pretend that this is an easy way of life. I don't pretend to say it's as easy as just getting baptized. Uh, I'm not saying that. That, that. that baptism after you're converted, that, that is a command and you obey it. You go ahead and just follow. This is life. This is where a rubber meets the road. This is, this is day in and day out stuff. But it is possible to live righteous and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in every aspect of things. I would have to say to you, my heart has not always been right against those who have railed against me. I have not yet had anyone try... Well, I have had some try to kill me and I've said to those who wanted to kill them, no, don't do that. That is not Christianity. We do not do that kind of thing if we are true Christians. It took place in India. But the outward evidence, don't kill them, is one thing. The inward evidence of a troubled heart and a bad attitude, that's another thing. Doing right by our enemies. Love. Doing the right thing. Give a man who is your enemy a drink of water, some food if he's hungry. That's the right thing to do. Doing right by our enemies includes praying. And I have prayed sometimes that God would rise up and destroy His enemies, but say, Lord, I don't know. And I don't want to pray outside of Your will. So, according as it is pleasing to You, Father. And I've also prayed, Lord, turn their hearts They don't know what they're doing. If they persist on this way, death is coming and hell is moving to open up its mouth to receive them. Lord, turn them. Christ died praying to the Father that the Father would forgive sinners. And the history of Christianity from that day to this is that God has been forgiving sinners, changing their lives and taking them to heaven. God has been forgiving sinners for a long, long time. Those that come to Him through Jesus Christ are never cast out, the Scripture says. And He is able to save them to the uttermost, the Scripture says. None who repent and believe on Christ go away lost, the Scripture says. There's a whole history, 2,000 years of history of sinners being forgiven by God who before they were saved lived their lives as sinners and enemies. And after they were saved lived their lives for the cause of God and truth on the earth. There's a whole history of sinners forgiven by God whose lives were changed, so dramatically changed that they too could live for the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and learn what it is to follow God into eternity. If we belong to God, if we are the Lord's, if we have taken up our cross as I preached a couple of weeks ago, if we have borne 
our own cross as we followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Now let us add to that this heart as we walk, seek to walk in the footsteps of our Lord. This heart that needs to be developed, nurtured, that prays, that is broken because Men and women and children who rise up against us or our God or His way who despise need to be saved. Our attitude toward those that may abuse His church or those who may abuse us will reveal whether or not there is something of true Christianity there. Is God there? I'm talking about the God who prayed while He was being crucified and said, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. They just don't know the end of that life. May God work in our own life. That tenderness of heart where sinners are prayed for. Let's pray together.